Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I was really excited to see all the kids here, bright and early on a rainy day. So parents, good job. You, you did, y'all did well this morning. I was really impressed. I was afraid it'd be a little, little, little thin in the kids' area. And y'all did good. I, I, y'all were even on time. It was just a shocker here. Want to rain more? Um, maybe it will. Who knows? We've been so lacking this, uh, this year. So I have a question. Just, just not a Bible question. Just to get our brains going this morning. Does anyone know who Edward Anthony Richard Lewis is? Anybody ever heard of this guy? Edney Anthony Richard Lewis. All right. That's exactly what I was guessing. Edward Anthony Richard Lewis is 10th in line to the throne of England. He's often known as Prince Edward, the Earl of Wessex. And if you're curious what Wessex is, I had to look it up too. It's basically south of London. And uh, Prince Edward is a very noble guy. I actually read a little bit about him. Prince, pretty solid dude. Um, he's very generous. He, he's involved in a lot of nonprofits. Uh, but his whole job is to not be the king and be in line and know he's never going to get it. The reason we don't know who this guy is, because he doesn't matter, right? I mean, we're not going to get to number 10, are we? It's just not going to happen. And, and as folks have more babies, he gets pushed down the line even a little further. And so Prince Edward doesn't matter. But I, just, just, again, getting our brains going this morning, I want you to picture the scene in England and really around the globe, because everybody loves that kind of drama, what would happen if we saw on the news, on the BBC, you know, the guy with the cool voice gets on there and announces that Queen Elizabeth of England has declared Prince Edward king and has given her his little, her little curtsy and he has taken the throne and he is sitting on the throne of England this morning. What would the reactions be across this globe? I mean, it would just be shock and I, like who is it why why not you know all the people that we like you know the cute princess weddings and like what happened to that what's this dude doing but that's exactly what happened in first kings chapter one solomon the guy we all know i'm king solomon you know i mean the queen of sheba even came to see him whoever that is and we know these things solomon was number 10 in line to be king of Israel. And one day, the, the, the Bible story we're going to read through today, one day David just says, nope, it's you. This is a shocking text, and we don't know that because we don't know our you know, Bible history very well. I, I had to look, by the way, I had to look all this stuff up too. It's, it's not just you. We need to grab this and see what happened. And all those characters that we, we know so well there's a lot of shock and surprise when we really read what the Scripture says about them. So today we're going to open up. Um, if you have a Bible, grab, uh, grab that. If you don't, please feel free to grab one um, out of those seat pockets there in front of you. We're going to be in 1 Kings. We're going to start in chapter 1. I want to give you a little bit of info first, but um, it's on page 274. Uh, if you want to open that up, or excuse me, 279. Uh, in that black Bible. Feel free to keep that. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. But let me give you just a little bit of introduction, kind of set the stage here. We've been going through a series of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And First and Second Kings picks up 
like to the day that 2 Samuel ends. Like this is one continuous big long story. There's no gap here. However, we do think, and then we don't know this for sure, this isn't recorded in the scripture, but we do think there was a pretty big gap in the writing of these two books. Like maybe hundreds, if not close to a thousand years. I mean, this is a big gap. Most people think um, that the book of First and Second Kings were actually written sometime after 586 B.C. So this is after the entire monarchy in Israel has fallen completely apart. We're going to read about the building of the temple, but we think that the writing of the book happened after the destruction of the temple. So this is, this is somebody looking way back and telling the folks in Israel who are, who are then in trouble, they're in exile, they're slaves. They're telling them, here's who you are, and here's how we got in this mess. That's the story, all right? Um, if you've picked up from First and Second Samuel, this isn't a happy story. There's not a happy ending at the end of this. And um, what we're going to see is some new themes kind of coming out. Uh, like, I truly think, and, and Joe and Chad will vouch for this, every week we have the sermon. You know what the sermon's about today? The king stinks. We need a new king called Jesus. I mean, like, that could have been the title of every sermon at every point. We could have just said that and been done with First and Second Samuel, all right? And then some of y'all are wishing we would have, but no. Um, the theme kind of changes. It's really, ironically, for a book called Kings... It's less about the kings, because the kings are all messed up. And so the themes kind of change. It goes from how did we get a king, and you know what, that king is inadequate, we need Jesus. And so the new themes are a little bit different. You see, the new themes have to do with who we are now. So we see this new emerging theme of how important the written word of God is. You'll see this over and over and over as a matter of fact, two of the primary characters in the books of First and Second Kings are not kings. They're prophets. They're guys preaching God's word. The second thing we're going to see is very similar to First and Second Samuel, is that people are messed up. We're going to see the worst of political insanity repeated over and over and over. We're pointing again to the need for a better kingdom, but not just the kings messed up in First and Second Kings. Everybody's messed up. And so we start to see that. The other thing that we're going to see that's new is the importance of the sacrificial system. So in First and Second Kings, uh, Pastor Chow will be preaching this in a few weeks, we're going to see the building of the temple and this amazing place that, that even the, the very structure and picture of it was just a little picture of what heaven might be like and what God was like. And so we see this amazing thing, and this is built up all through the book of First and Second Kings, but then it's shown to just be torn down like regular old rubble. It's corrupted. The priests who, who work there are corrupt. So we see this mess. The best thing we could get, it's still not good enough. We need a better sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. So, so that's kind of where we're going, all right? So characters you need to know. There were three big characters in the books of First and Second Samuel. Y'all remember them? First, the easy one, 
Samuel, there you go, thank you, my kids know to talk back here, Samuel, right? And Samuel's not a king, he's the last judge and he's a priest, and he gets us ready for the kings. And then the first king is Saul, Saul's horrible, quite literally crazy, and uh, he just ruins everything. And then we have David, David's a good king who messes up enormously off and on, but he always is a good repenter and he comes back. And so we have a prophet, or, or excuse me, not a prophet, but a priest, and two kings. Well, we see kind of the opposite thing happen in the books of First and Second Kings. The first major character we get introduced to him today is Solomon, David's son, tenth in line to the throne, who's the tenth son of David. And so Solomon is a big character, and he's a big king, and he's a big personality. And again, he, he goes off the deep end toward the uh, middle of his life. He starts well, and he ends well. It's sure a mess in the middle. And that's about it for kings. Most of the other kings maybe get a chapter, maybe. Some of them get a verse. But the two other primary characters are prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And so we're going to see this transition of the, the rise of the monarchy and it peaks at David and Solomon and then just nosedive and crash and burn. So that's what's happening. So that's where we're at, okay? We are right in the middle. We're right at the peak, the good time. And I want you all to see that. So open with me. Again, 1 Kings chapter 1, page 279. We're going to start in verse 1. We're not going to read. This is a really long chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing. But I do want us to um, hit several parts And we start with kind of an odd, weird thing that happens. Um, One of the things that you'll see in God's Word as you're reading this, and if you're new to God's Word, let me encourage you um, to take in a lot. But one of the things about the history books, we're not told if things are bad or good sometimes. we got this weird, uh, somewhere between slavery, adultery mess that goes on. And it doesn't say it's bad. It doesn't mean it's not bad. It's bad. But we're not told here about it. The author's trying to make a point. And by the way, he doesn't give us all the details. There's all this political intrigue that goes on. And we don't know whose fault it is. Is this David not setting up a successful, you know, a good succession plan? Is this, you know, just rebels coming up? We have no idea. It's just we're given what we need to get the message. And that's the whole point, is, is what is God trying to get through? And so we'll see that a little bit in 1 Kings today. So open with me, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now King David was old and advanced in years. Wouldn't you love to be David in this case? The whole point, opening the book, you're old. Um, and all they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service, and let her lie in your arms. Um, It's it's innuendo there, all right? There's, There's sexual overtones there. And so they decide the solution to David being cold is adultery. It's another concubine for David. This is condemned elsewhere in Scripture, but David did not follow those condemnations at all. So verse 3. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite. Uh, the Shunammite, it's, it's a town, it's up there. She's a farm girl. That's what it's saying. She is from the country region, all right? And they brought her to the king. This young woman was very beautiful. So they literally searched the whole country for the prettiest girl 
in the country. They bring her, it says over and over about her beauty. And she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. In other words, they did not have sexual relations. They didn't have intercourse. So here's, here's the point of this passage. They get the prettiest girl in the land, and David doesn't even care. That's how old and gray and just near death David was. There's nothing. They try to set him up. And he just lays there good as dead. And then see what happens. Everybody gets it. David has literally lost all his power. David's no good anymore. Verse 5. Now Adoniah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, this is David, had never at any time displeased him by saying, Why have you done thus? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. All right, so let me fill in the gaps here so we, we get what's going on. David's first son committed incest. Another son killed him. That son then got killed. Then we got Absalom. Absalom tries to stage a coup. He's, he's number um, three. And so next in line is Adoniah. And Adoniah, he, he was the natural guy to be king. He was in line for the king. Everybody else ahead of him was dead. And he was big, he was handsome, and everybody liked him. And so he starts saying, I'm going to be king. I'm going to be king. He, he gets a chariot. He starts riding around town like he's king. It says David says nothing about this. Now, we don't know why he says nothing. David may not have known. Again, he is near death. All right. So verse 7. He confirmed with Joab, the son of Zariah. Joab's a general, all right? So he's kind of a disgraced general, but, but David keeps him around. He's a mess, all right? And with Abiathar, the priest, this was one of David's dear friends, and he was the second in command of the sacrificial system. So you got the general, number two in the religious system. Do y'all see where this is going? And they followed Adoniah and helped him. But Zadok... The high, or excuse me, the priest, he was the high priest. He was the number one guy, all right? But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehodia, he is the number two general, all right? And Nathan the prophet, this is the preacher. This is David's kind of personal spiritual counsel. And Shammai, we have no clue why this guy's in here. He's a heckler of David, weird, random guy. He's apparently did a bunch of stuff we don't know about. Again, we're only told what we need. And Ray, no clue who he is. And David's mighty men, this is like David's elite force, so this is like the Green Berets, were not with Adoniah. So, here's what's happening. Adoniah is setting himself up to be king. He gets the general. He gets the number two priest who he could turn. And this was very much a betrayal of David. Abiathar was close friends with David. He gets them, and he's setting himself up to become king of Israel. All right? So, here's what happens. They go off, they're getting ready, and they're going to have a coronation ceremony. So they're getting sacrifices ready, and they go off to the brook, which was where they had these uh, sacrifices in the coronation. So here's what happens next. Now, I'm going to summarize a big chunk of this scripture so we can move a little bit faster. 
Nathan, this prophet who was not invited, goes to Bathsheba. All right, if you remember, this is the woman with which David committed adultery, had a baby, that baby died eventually, and he kills Bathsheba's husband and then marries her. Big mess, complete scandal, I mean, horrible, horrible stuff. But apparently, Bathsheba's kind of turned in this. She's a, she's a positive character in this story. And so, again, we don't know all the details. David may have raped Bathsheba for all we know. This may have been an awesome lady. We, we just don't know all these details. So Bathsheba and Nathan get to talking. Nathan says, do you know what's going on? Bathsheba says, what in the world? What do you mean Adoniah is proclaiming himself king? David said, my son Solomon's going to be king. If this guy becomes king, we're going to have war, and Solomon and I are probably going to get killed. So she goes to David, who's with Abishag the Shunammite. How weird can that be, all right? But anyway, so in comes Bathsheba, says, David, what's up? You'd said Solomon's going to be king. Abiath, uh, Adoniah is proclaiming himself king. Did, did you change something? And right that moment, intentionally timed, Nathan walks in. David, do you know what's going on? Adonai is saying he's king. Did, did you change? Did you not tell us? I, we're good with whatever you say, but uh, you said Solomon was going to be king. And David is scared. He's concerned. He's frustrated. So skip down um, to chapter 1, verse 38. We're going to skip way, way down. And David says, no, 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 no. Solomon's going to be king. Number 10 is the guy I've picked. Here's what it says. So Zadok the priest, this is again the high priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehodiah, and that's again another general, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. These are probably like mercenaries who are David's personal guard. So in other words, David's saying, secret service, go with this guy. All right, he's, he's handing everything over. They went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. So he's getting his personal Lexus there, all right? And brought him to Gihon. That's another spring. That's, that's where Jerusalem gets its water. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. This is the equivalent of crowning him. They didn't put a crown on people's head. They, they poured oil over their head in that day. They blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. I mean, it's just, it is a party. Um, I've been in Jerusalem for a party once. It was the 500th um, anniversary of the current modern Jerusalem. Um, we were there. It was, I've never seen anything like that in my life. We left about five o'clock because it was, it was getting a little too wild. I mean, those folks in Jerusalem, man, they know how to throw down with a party. The next morning they came in and they had dump trucks and guys with snow shovels. Where they got snow shovels in the middle of the desert? I don't know. Shoveling trash. I mean, this, was, this is the kind of party we're talking about. It was enormous. It was so big of a party, as a matter of fact, that it gets Adonai's attention. Look with me there in verse 41 now. It says, Adonai and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sounds of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? They're, they're a mile or two off and they can hear people shouting. 
While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Abdoniah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. And Jonathan answered Adoniah, Nope, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehodiah, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. In other words, David did it. David did it right. He didn't get the you know, number two guys here. It's the real deal. And they had him ride on the king's mule, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. So David, an invalid in his bed, doesn't even get out of bed. He gets up in the bed and bows down to Solomon. The king himself, King David, bows to Solomon. The king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day. My own eyes have seen it. So Adonijah gets some rough news. It doesn't go well for Adonijah. So he hears all this. He knows this has gone on. And he's just in a mess. He knows that now the rightful king, who David said is going to be king, who has now been officially anointed, in other words, crowned king, and he's on the throne and everybody in town's excited. So Ananias is in trouble. He's now a rebel against the true king. He now has a death sentence, so to speak, and he is scared to death. He gets it. He gets how bad this is. So look with me verse there in verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. In other words, they just leave it. I'm not with him. We're done. We're out. He is by himself. And Adonijah feared Solomon. Yeah, I bet. So he arose and he went, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Okay, so we get some weird historical references. We'll, we'll get there um, if you'll just track with me for just a minute. So here's what happens. Adonai is all alone. So Adonai runs back into town. There's, there's probably a three-mile distance here we're talking about. And it says he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. So we need to scoot back just a little bit into the end of 2 Samuel. If you remember how we ended, um, David has sinned in his pride, and, and God gives him the choice of three punishments. Um, three disciplines, and he chooses the least of these, and it's a pestilence. And this pestilence is, is moving through Israel. And right as it's about to get to Jerusalem, the most populous place in David's city, um, God allows David to sacrifice, and the plague stops. And that place where he sacrificed, it's the same place where Abraham um, was about to sacrifice Isaac, and God said, stop, and he provided a substitute lamb to save Isaac. The same hill, it was the hill where the temple sits. Um, it's the same place where the mosque, El-Aqsa, sits today, the, the Dome of the Rock. The rock is what we're talking about right here. And David had built an altar on it. There's no temple or anything there yet. But on there, there was just a big pile of rocks, square rocks, 
And on that, they would sacrifice animals and, and have fires to burn up as an act of worship and a plea for forgiveness and plea for mercy to God. And so it was made practically. It was kind of a big square. We don't know exactly how big this one was. And on the corners, it would, the corners kind of came up. Just like, how many of y'all have a wood-burning fireplace? Anybody have those anymore? We have a wood-burning. I love my fireplace. You know, you have the rack in there, and it comes up on the outsides to keep the wood from falling out on both sides. Well, that's what the altar looked like. It was very practical. The, the edges, the corners came up. They're called the horns of the altar. And so Adonijah literally runs for this place, jumps up, grabs one of these corners of the altar, and just bear hugs this thing. And he's just there. So the next thing that happens is we start to see that Ananiah maybe is a little more complicated person than we thought. He's not just an outright hater of Solomon. He was a rebel because he wanted his own way and he wanted to be king. Ananias was his act was far more than just a simple mistake. It was an act of rebellion against King Solomon. It was an act of rebellion against King David before that. And I think one of our great problems, I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about probably everybody here, is that so often we get so into our agenda that we do exactly what Adonijah did. We're after it. We're on a beeline for our course. And we end up as rebels to the king. See, God has given His law, His way, His plan for us. And every single one of us has rejected it from the very first, from Adam and Eve there in the garden when God said, do not eat this. And they said, oh yeah, we're eating that. It wasn't a simple choice of what to have for lunch. It was defiance of God Himself. And I think that's what we fail to grasp about our own hearts in the United States, our Constitution, we can make amendments to it. It's not easy to do. It's actually very, very difficult. That's why we haven't had one in a long time. These are laws that are huge. These are laws that are important. These are laws that go to every single state. So it's voted on in D.C., and then it goes out, and the states have to vote. And each state, up to a certain number have to do this, have to what is called ratify the Constitution. They have, to, they have to put their stamp. So the state votes and says, yes, we agree with what they did in Washington. This needs to be part of our Constitution. And what every one of us have done, what you have done, what I have done, is we have taken Adam and Eve's sin, taken Adonijah's rebellion, and we've said, yeah, I'm in. Scripture says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, but let me talk to the Christians here for a second. If you're not a believer, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you've joined us. And we hope and pray that God's Word will speak to you. But, but I want to talk to the folks who are Christians here. So often, we write off our sins is just, oh, you know, well, that's just the way I am. Or I just have a problem with that. Or maybe, you know, that's just, that's just my, my pet sin. That's just my weakness. We're not recognizing sin for what the Scripture says it is. It's rebellion against the true 
King Jesus. 1 John says it this way. If any of you say you don't have sin, you don't think your stuff's a big deal, says you are a liar. And you have no part in the kingdom of God. So Christian, let me talk to you and make sure you understand. I'm not just talking about maybe those folks out there that, that we characterize as the really bad sinners. I'm talking about me. And I'm talking about you. We have rebelled against the true king. And the guilt that we carry is scary because we know better. We have God's word to tell us this stuff. We know what God says. But still, we throw our fists up. Say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I want the forbidden fruit. I want to be king instead of listen to the true one. It's exactly what Adoniah did. Now, you're ready for the, the kicker to this? this? This is just as I was studying through, kicked me. you've probably heard his name sounds familiar, doesn't it? Adonai. Anybody know what that means in Hebrew? We, we see it all through the scriptures. It means Lord. It, it means king. It means, it means ruler. And the last part of his name is a shortening for the name of God. Adoniah means God's in charge. Anybody find that a little ironic? The guy who literally, he was created and named God's in charge says, nope, I'm going to be king. I don't care what God says. I don't care what David says. I don't care about, I'm in charge. He was going against his very being. And that's exactly what we're like. Our purpose, our calling, the reason we are here is to glorify and praise King Jesus, to lift up His name, to make His name known to the ends of the very earth. And yet we're so all about our little kingdoms and setting ourselves up as king. We're all little Adonias. We're all rebels to the king. But just as Adoniah, when he recognized who he was and what he was doing, he made a beeline. He ran straight for that horn of the altar and he just grabbed on. I, I really, like, I, I, I want to picture this side of this grown dude just like plastered on this big rock, holding on literally for dear life, hoping that because it's some spiritual place, Solomon won't kill him. But just as Adoniah knew where to go, he knew to go to the altar. He knew to go to the place where God showed mercy. God has made a way for folks like me and for folks like you. The altar of Adoniah's day, it, it was just a picture of something more. It was, it was just first a picture of the temple that was coming. Where sacrifice, as we said, would be, would be laid out in the book of First and Second Kings. This enormous system and, and system that pointed us to Christ system that pointed us to God that we can't save ourselves. But even that was temporary because that temple would be destroyed and another built in its place. And Jesus came along and said, yeah, that temple, yeah. If you destroyed this temple, referring to his own body, I'll raise it again in three days. See, there was something better coming. And the better thing wasn't just the temple. The better thing wasn't even just the second temple. The better thing was Christ Himself. 
See, all this sacrificial stuff, all that we're going to see in 1 Kings is to help us see our need for Jesus' sacrifice for us that would actually take away sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, For our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So then in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There on the altar on which Jesus was crucified, that cross, God provided. God gave us a place of mercy. It wasn't just, you know, that means that we got to hug, bear hug this altar thing anymore. Now we run to Jesus. The better sacrifice than anything that ever happened on that altar. Um, Hebrews 9.22 says it like this. Indeed, under the law, that's the Old Testament, the rules of God, everything is purified with blood. They used to sprinkle the altar to show it was holy with blood, things like that. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, without Christ's blood, we could never be forgiven. Think back to what Joe read out of Hebrews 4. That now we can come boldly into the throne of God. We can walk not just to the altar and grab on. We can walk into the very throne room because we've been forgiven by Christ, by His blood. Hebrews 10, I want to read this a little longer section. 1-10 through 10 says it like this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. That, that altar, it's, it's just think of it as a shadow. I really want to put it into a shadow, but Jeff lit this place up too well. If we, if we were outside, not today there'd be a shadow, right? That's not the real thing. It's just a a, a kind of a blurry, distorted image. That altar that Adoniah was clinging to is just a blurry, distorted image of Jesus. So let me start again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of this reality, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. In other words, if those sacrifices worked, they wouldn't have had to keep doing it. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. They had to keep doing it over and over. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In other words, God the Father prepared the body of Christ to be offered for sins. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, this is Jesus talking. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, you neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sins, these he offered according to the law. He then said, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, all that stuff is done. Now we have Jesus. Verse 10, and by that we, we, catch the we here, by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So let me say this to you. Maybe some of you in here have heard some of this stuff before. Maybe it's your first time and you're saying, what is this stuff? Jesus dying? The offering, sacrifice, this sounds very, very primitive. 
what is happening here is the most glorious divine exchange that could ever be imagined. The Scriptures say that the way God offers forgiveness, because He's a completely just God, that the the horrible things that were done to you must be punished because they were horrible. But also the horrible things we've done need to be punished because they are horrible. And God in His grace, God in His mercy, that's the key word for this sermon, God in His mercy doesn't want you to suffer for what you've done. In His love, in His kindness, in His mercy, He offered up a substitute sacrifice so that justice is served, punishment is given, but that punishment was given to Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament says the, the iniquity of us all was laid upon Him. The sins, the, the, the wrong that we have done was laid upon Jesus. And He bore it then on the tree. That same book by the prophet Isaiah says that by His stripes, by His whippings, by His beating, by His blood shed, you have been healed. So friend, if you're considering the claims of Christ, my plea to you today whether it's today or tomorrow, is take this to heart. That God offers mercy to those who run and cling to the altar. Not not just the altar of Adonai, but the true altar of, of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. Not by being good, not by getting good enough, but by the fact that He has offered forgiveness for your sins. He's taken your bad. And offers forgiveness. But if you're a Christian here, if you have trusted Christ, some of us are hanging on to guilt that we have no business hanging on to. Over the years, I don't know how many folks I've talked to, and I don't know how many times in my own life and heart, I've been so blinded to Jesus by just bearing misery over my sin. We should feel remorse for our sins. Sent Jesus to the cross. But the guilt of that sin, we don't have to bear. One of my favorite songs I quoted a lot is bleed no more, speaking to Christians. Bleed no more. In other words, you don't have to make yourself suffer. There's no more left for me. Bleed no more. His body is on the tree. You don't have to suffer this anymore. You don't have to bear this guilt anymore because Christ has already done it for you. So let's finish up. Verse 51. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonai fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of the hairs of his head shall befall the earth. If wickedness is found in him, he shall die. He shall die. Verse 53. King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. He came and he paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your house. Again, we're not told everything. Later, this all goes downhill. Adoniah 
later rebels again against Solomon. He's killed for it. But, but the author very intentionally says, here's the information you need. What you need to get is that when there was a rebel in desperate fear for his life, he ran to the altar and he just latched on. And here's the last thing. The king, the king, who had every right to whack off his head, the king showed mercy. Go on to your house. Let me encourage you here, brothers and sisters, whether you're a believer or not, if you're not a believer, there is mercy to be had. The King Jesus will show mercy to you, and He shows a much more complete mercy than Solomon ever did. Solomon had asterisks, right? King Jesus says, place your trust in Me. Trust Me to save instead of you trying to have it your own way. And repent. Turn from what you want and you trying to be king and turn to Me as King Jesus. As the people say, long live the King. It's the exact proclamation we get to say. But the beautiful news is our King never dies. So if you're not a believer, if if you've not taken in the claims of Christ, let me plead with you to consider that today. Trust Christ and repent and turn to Him. We would love to chat with you. If you came with someone, ask them. If you didn't, our pastors, elders will be standing around. Grab somebody on your row. Ask, what in the world does this mean? But for those of you who have trusted Christ, there's this beautiful thing that we get to embrace. We, we get to remember the blood of Christ shed for us. That the King showed mercy. The King showed mercy to you. The King showed mercy to me when I was nine years old, sitting in a pastor's office, torn up with guilt, fear, The king showed mercy to me, even me. And today, as we come to this table, this this supper of the Lamb, this supper of Jesus, we come because the king has shown us mercy. The king shows mercy not just to people who made a little mistake. The king shows mercy to rebels. That's us. And we get to come and embrace and take in this physical representation to remind us of the mercy and grace and kindness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our souls. So believers today, let me encourage you. The the application, the, the where we go today is to the table of Jesus. We're going to take bread. It's a picture. It's just bread. It represents, though, His body. We're going to take a cup, and it's just juice. But it represents the blood that he shed on that cross. And this is a picture of what we do. We take in Christ. We need to do this over and over. He says to do this again until I come. We do it over and over and over. And the reason is we constantly need Christ's mercy. So let me plead with you believers today. That sin that you committed, that time you yelled at your husband, that time 
you were just a jerk driving? You sinned in your anger? That time, students, you disobeyed your parents this week. That time where those evil thoughts, those sinful thoughts just filled your mind and you just embraced them. The bitterness that you had onto. Now is the time to confess that. To, to cling to the altar. To run just like I don't know and just grab hold. But we're not grabbing hold of some hard stone. We're grabbing hold of the promises of Christ that the King shows mercy. We're pleading for forgiveness. And then by faith, we actually receive it. And as Joe read in Hebrews earlier, then we come boldly. We walk right into the throne room and lay our hearts out before God in joy, in peace, with no fear of what might come because He's got us. I want to read something to you. We're going to pray. Our ushers are going to come forward. I want to read the story wrote out in song of a man who's a cocaine addict. This cocaine addict had ruined his marriage, become estranged from his children, committed adultery. This addict had gotten to such a dark place he decided to kill himself. He walked out into a cave, intentionally trying to get himself lost to die. In that cave, he remembered what he'd been taught as a kid, and he trusted Christ. His name's Johnny Cash. I want to read you a song he sung. Oh Lord, help me walk another mile, just one more mile. I'm tired of walking, oh Lord. Oh Lord, help me to smile another smile, just one more smile. Don't think I can do it on my own. I never thought I needed help before. I thought I could get by by myself. But now I know I just can't take it anymore. With a humble heart, on bending knee, I'm begging you, please, for help. Oh, come down from your golden throne to me, to lowly me. I need to feel the touch of your tender hand. Release these chains of darkness. Let me see, Lord, let me see just where I fit into your master plan. I never thought I needed help before. I thought I could get by by myself. Now I know I just can't take it anymore. With a humble heart on bended knee, I'm begging you, please, for help. With a humble heart on bended knee, I'm begging you, please, for help. That's the prayer of the Christian for mercy. So our deacons come forward. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we come on bended knee with humble heart and we're begging You for help. Just as Adonijah, not, not the good example, but he knew where to go. He knew to run and plead for mercy. So we do the same. Lord, we're begging You for help. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, that, that not just an old stone altar to cling to, but Your very Son who died for us and rose again 
paying for our sins and offering His perfect righteousness to cover our unrighteousness. And Lord, we come and we just fall on the altar. I fall onto Your Son and beg for help. And Lord, we also come in faith. We trust You to forgive our sins. Lord, we repent. We turn from our ways that we have turned against You. And we turn back to You, Jesus. Lord, as we take this Lord's Supper now, prick each of our hearts. May we remember the body and blood of Christ given for us. In Jesus' Your name we pray. Amen.